Good morning. My name's Darren. And this morning I'll be reading from Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 17, and from Psalm 89, uh, verses 20 through to 52. Now I'll be doing things a little bit differently this morning. I'll be jumping back and forth between the two passages. As I do so, I encourage you to try and uh, see the way the two passages intersect with each other. So uh, let's start with Matthew chapter 1, reading from verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. Now we're going to jump to Psalm 89, starting at verse 20, which gives us a bit of a reflection on uh, God raising up this King David. I have found David my servant. With my sacred oil I have anointed him. My hand will sustain him. Surely my arm will strengthen him. The enemy will not get the better of him. The wicked will not oppress him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down his adversaries. My faithful love will be with him and through my name his horn will be exalted. I will set his hand over the sea, his right hand over the rivers. He will call out to me, you are my father, my God, the rock, my saviour. And I will appoint him to be my firstborn, the most exalted of the kings of the earth. I will maintain my love to him forever, and my covenant with him will never fail. I will establish his line forever, his throne, as long as the heavens endure. If his sons forsake my law, and do not follow my statutes, if they violate my decrees, and fail to keep my commands, I will punish their sin with the rod, their iniquity with flogging. But I will not take my love from him, nor will I ever betray my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter what my lips have uttered. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, and I will not lie to David, that his line will continue forever and his throne will endure before me like the sun. It will be established forever like the moon, the faithful witness in the sky. Now we'll jump back to Matthew 1, uh, beginning halfway through verse 6. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, 
the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asa, Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram, Jehoram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amon, Amon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. Now we'll jump back to Psalm 89 from verse 38, where the author reflects on how disappointing David's family of kings has been as kings over God's children, over God's people. But you have rejected, you have spurned, you have been very angry with your anointed one. You have renounced the covenant with your servant and have defiled his crown in the dust. You have broken through all his walls and reduced his strongholds to ruin. All who pass by have plundered him. He has become the scorn of his neighbours. You have exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all his enemies rejoice. Indeed, you have turned back the edge of his sword and have not supported him in battle. You have put an end to his splendour and cast his throne to the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth. You have covered him with a mantle of shame. How long, Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how fleeting is my life. For what futility you have created all humanity. Who can live and not see death? Or who can escape the power of the grave? Lord, where is your former great love, which in your faithfulness you swore to David? Remember, Lord, how your servant has been mocked, how I bear in my heart the taunts of all nations, the taunts with which your enemies, Lord, have mocked with which they have mocked every step of your anointed one. Praise be to the Lord forever. Amen and Amen. Let's finish off in Matthew again, starting at verse 12. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud, Abihud, the father of Eliakim, Eliakim, the father of Azor, Azor, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Akim, Akim, the father of Elihud, Elihud, the father of Eleazar, Eleazar, the father of Mathan, Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus there were fourteen generations in all, from Abraham to David, fourteen from David to the exile to Babylon, and fourteen from the exile to the Messiah. 
It's been a very different year and it's shaping up to be a very different Christmas. The pageant was different this year. Most Christmassy type school things have been cancelled. We can't have a carol service as a church. Even this right now is different. If you told me this time last year that we'd be doing church online two weeks out from Christmas, I probably would have said to you, what's church online? And maybe it's just me, but it just doesn't feel that much like Christmas this year. Everything feels different. Have you had a Christmas before where things have felt very different? A couple of years ago, as a family, we had curry for Christmas lunch instead of a roast, and that felt a bit different, but it wasn't very different. When I think of a very different Christmas, there are two that come to mind for me. Christmas 20 years ago in, in the year 2000 was a very different Christmas for me. My mum had died earlier that year, so Christmas was very different in a bad way. It felt so empty. But then the next year, 2001, Christmas was very different in a good way. I got married that year and so Christmas, it, it, it felt so full. Today and next week and on Christmas Day, we're going to pick up this idea of a very different Christmas. What we're going to see is that the first Christmas was in its own way something very different. It was a huge event that changed everything about God's world. And it, it holds the key to make things very different for us, very different in a good way. And today we're going to be starting in a bit of a different place too, a, a different place to where you might expect the Christmas story to start. We're going to be starting with the family tree of Jesus. Most of us don't really think of Jesus' family tree as being relevant to the Christmas story. I've got to admit that when I come to family trees like this in the Bible, I often read them a bit like this. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of one, two, skip a few. Mary was the mother of Jesus. Now on with the real story. The funny thing is, is that if we do that, we're actually missing a part of the real story because Jesus' family tree tells us a story. And in fact, all family trees tell stories. Let's be honest though, usually people's stories about their family trees are incredibly boring to everyone except them. My uncle is into family trees and so I try to stick well away from that topic whenever I'm speaking with him because I'm bored by my own family tree. That's how ordinary it is. Apparently Kathy though, my wife, she has King Canut and even Joseph of Arimathea in her family tree. The guy who buried Jesus. I'm a bit skeptical of that. I think the truth is that she's got a few people in her family tree who like to embellish their roots. But even still, even with King Canute and Joseph of Arimathea, even still, it's, it's not that interesting a family tree, really. But it's different with Jesus. Jesus' family tree has got quite a few surprises. It's got some very distinguished people, but it's also got some very notorious people, too. It's got quite a few unexpected people. Jesus' family tree tells us all sorts of things about him and not just about him because his family tree tells us the story of God's people. It tells us the story of God's plan for the world and it shows, that it shows what God is doing in Jesus is something very different, something momentous. So let's have a closer look at it. And as we do that, the first thing that we need to see is that Matthew has crafted this family tree to tell a story. I said before that all family trees tell stories, but this was definitely more the case for them than it is for us today. Our family trees tend to be a, a complete list of boring names stretching back in time, but their family trees were crafted 
They were still true, but they were selective. They would skip generations and arrange things in a certain way to tell the story. And we might think, hang on a minute, you, you can't do that. You've got to include everyone, even if they are uninteresting. But we need to realize that they're doing something different to what people today might do with a family tree. And actually, because they're, they're focused on the story, what Matthew is doing is far more interesting. And did you notice that Matthew tells us right up front the story that he wants Jesus' family tree to tell? Look at verse 1. He writes, This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The storyline of this family tree is that Jesus is the promised king. Now, Matthew, he's like my sister. He doesn't believe in surprises. My, my sister had this foolproof method for guessing what was in a present underneath the Christmas tree. She'd rip off the corner of the wrapping paper and she'd look inside. It worked every time. Now, that's kind of like what Matthew's doing. He's showing us exactly what's inside his book. We're supposed to see that Jesus is the Messiah. That's his title. In Hebrew, you, you say Mashiach in, in English, Messiah. But in Greek, you say Christos, and Christos in English is Christ. Now, it's a bit confusing, but they all mean the same thing. Messiah, Christ, Christos, Mashiach. They all mean anointed one, which means that this is a story about Jesus being the long-awaited promised king that God has chosen to rule his people. And then the rest of Matthew's book is all about what kind of promised king Jesus is going to be. But the family tree, it already starts to answer this question because we read, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David. Matthew wants to show us that Jesus stands in a lineup with the greatest of all kings over Israel, David. Jesus stands ready to be the kind of king that God promised would come from David. So what we have here in front of us is it's not merely a list of boring names. It's not even just a family tree, actually. This is a royal lineage. Once the names get to David in verse 6, we see who sat on the throne in Jerusalem. And after the exile to Babylon in verse 12, it shows us who would have been entitled to sit on the throne the instant that Israel had thrown off the nations that ruled them and became their own country again. Just before we move to unpack some more of, of this family tree, did you know that Matthew's family tree is actually quite different to Luke's? Does that worry you? In Luke, Joseph's father is Heli, but in Matthew, it's Jacob. That's a bit of a problem, isn't it? I don't know about you, but I don't like the idea of there being mistakes in the Bible. There are some people, though, who love the idea of there being mistakes in the Bible. Some people only read the Bible because they're looking for mistakes. They're looking as hard as they can to find inconsistencies so that they can point them out to Christians and show them why they're not very bright for believing the Bible. Some people, they hold up Luke's genealogy alongside Matthew's and they say, how can Joseph's father be Heli in Luke and Jacob in Matthew? It's a very good question. But some people ask it not because they want to know the answer, but because they think they already know the answer. Lots of people think they already know Jesus' identity. And sometimes they accuse Christians of being closed-minded. But in reality, no matter what evidence we could give them, they've already made up their minds about Jesus, and that clouds their judgment. And actually, that's being closed-minded. If you're not sure about Jesus, don't be like that. Investigate who he really is. You might be surprised by what you find. You might find he's very different 
to what you expected. Now, there are several possible reasons why Luke's genealogy is different to Matthew's. The most likely possibilities are either Luke is following Mary's bloodline because, as he says, Jesus was the son, so it was thought of Joseph. He was not actually his biological son. That's a possibility. But most likely what's going on is that Matthew's list is not concerned with biological relationships. Matthew's list is all about legal ancestry. It's a succession list, a royal lineage. And kingship, it doesn't always go from father to son. It usually stays within the wider family, but there's adoption, just like Jesus is adopted by Joseph to be his son. And in the case of a king having no children, the next heir in line may well be a nephew. So Luke's genealogy focuses on the biological relationships of Joseph. It asks the question, who was Joseph's father? And the answer to that question is Heli. Whereas Matthew's genealogy focuses on the kingship lineage. It starts with the question, who was the heir to David's throne? And the answer is first Solomon. But if you keep following it all the way down, the answer is Joseph and finally Jesus. So at first it looks like a problem, but in the end, it's only a problem to those who won't read the Bible with an open mind. Do you know that us Christians, we, it's like we put our heads on the chopping block. Because we believe in objective truth. We believe what's true for you is, sorry, we don't believe what's true for you is true for you and what's true for me is true for me and it, and it doesn't matter if they clash. We believe in objective truth, not relative truth like that. And so we also believe that the Bible is the word of God. So you see what this means? Prove that the Bible is wrong. Prove that it's making stuff up and you've actually killed Christianity. You really have. We Christians make ourselves incredibly vulnerable claiming to hold the truth. And yet, after 2000 years, despite many people frantically taking swipes at Christianity, no one has been able to prove Christianity wrong. People try, but time and time again, they show that they're reading the Bible wrong or something that confirms the Bible turns up in archeology span and, and proves them wrong and proves the Bible right. Or the discovery of some other ancient manuscripts ends up showing that actually the Bible is correct. And the way these two family trees fit together is an example of that. So let's get back to Matthew's family tree now. Matthew is carefully showing us that Jesus comes into the world in a real historical context. Notice that while Matthew doesn't make stuff up, he does craft Jesus' family tree to tell the story. Do you notice the way that Matthew adds in these, these tiny little bits of commentary along the way? Like look at verse two, he says, Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Why does he say that? Why add that bit? It's because he wants his readers to remember the story. He wants them to think particularly of Genesis 49. In Genesis 49, just before Jacob dies, he, he blesses all his sons. But he says to Judah, your father's sons will bow down to you. And then he says, verse 10, the scepter will not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he to whom it belongs shall come and the obedience of the nations shall be his. Matthew is showing that Jesus is this promised descendant of Judah, this promised king. And it's the same in verse six. It's not just a list of names. Matthew writes, Jesse, the father of King David. And again, Matthew wants his readers to remember the story, the story of one and two Samuel. And particularly, he wants us to remember 2 Samuel chapter 7, which we saw just a couple of months ago, 
where God promised David, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I'll establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I'll establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Matthew's showing us that Jesus is this promised king because Solomon, David's son, he doesn't ever fully fulfill this promise. And then in verse 11, Matthew highlights Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. Why? Well, again, he wants his readers to remember the story. He wants them to think particularly of, of Jeremiah chapter 22 and 23. Je Jeconiah is another name for Jehoiachin. And he was the last of many terrible kings. And through Jeremiah, God said to him, this is what the Lord says. Record this man as if childless, a man who will not prosper in his lifetime. For none of his offspring will prosper. None will sit on the throne of David or rule anymore in Judah. But then just a few verses later, Jeremiah goes on to say in, in chapter 23, verse 5, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord, our righteous saviour. Matthew is showing that Jesus is the promised king who'll be very different to all the kings who've come before him. His family tree, he, he crafts it to show that Jesus He's not simply another king and a long line of kings with another king to follow him. Matthew's point is that Jesus' coming is very different. His coming is all about fulfilling all the hopes and dreams of hundreds and hundreds of years of history. Jesus is not a Messiah. He's the Messiah. He's the promised king, the king of kings. And there's even more to the way that Matthew has crafted things here. Through this genealogy, he's telling a story that's got four parts. Look at verse 17. Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David. That's part one of the story. It's all about God starting the kingship. Then he goes on. There were 14 from David to the exile to Babylon. That's part two. It's all about the kingship being a complete failure and coming to a miserable end. Then he goes on. There were 14 from the exile to the Messiah. That's part three. It's all about longing for a king who will undo the failure of the previous kings undo the failure of God's people and undo the failure of the world. But what about part four? Well, that's what Matthew's account of Jesus' life is all about. It's part four of the story. That's the point. And Christmas is the beginning of part four. It's the beginning of something very different where the Messiah, the promised King, has come to undo the failure of the world. That's the true story that Matthew wants the world to hear. But if we're going to properly understand just how very different the coming of Jesus is to everyone who's come before him, then we're not quite done yet. Because I, I skipped over some other comments that Matthew puts in there. And this is where we meet some notorious and some random people in Jesus' genealogy. There are four comments that are all a bit similar. Look at verse 3. We see Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Look at verse 5. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. And look at verse 6. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. All these comments, they highlight four mums. But why? What's special about these four women? Why does Matthew highlight them in the story? There are three main possibilities. 
The first possibility is that Matthew is highlighting the importance that women are going to play in Jesus' story. Now, it's true that women play a big part in Jesus' life. They were his close friends. They helped support him and make his ministry possible. In the end, they proved to be better disciples than the men, and they were the first witnesses of his resurrection, even though back then their testimony wasn't given equal weight with men's testimony in their society, which was terrible. All of this is, is true, and, and Jesus is a very different king like this. But Matthew's focus isn't just that Jesus is a different kind of king, but that he's the promised king. So I've got to keep looking for what's going on here. The second possibility is that Matthew is highlighting the way God uses questionable and messy circumstances to work out his plans. Tamar got pregnant with Perez and Zira by her father-in-law when she was posing as a prostitute. That's pretty dodgy stuff. Rahab had also been a prostitute. And Solomon was the product of an affair between David and Uriah's wife. Now, it's true that God's not afraid to work through messy circumstances. In Jesus' ministry, he's a friend to all sorts of people. He doesn't reject even prostitutes. At one point, a woman washes his feet with her tears and dries them with her hair. And the religious leaders are disgusted that he would be so close and so intimate with such a sinful woman. And Jesus says to them, those who are forgiven much love much. God loves to save sinners and restore them and make them a part of his plan. And it's beautiful the way God works. And Jesus is, is a very different kind of king who was even called the friend of sinners. But the problem with this idea is it, it only properly works for two out of four of the, the women in the list. Ruth wasn't, a wasn't a notorious woman and Bathsheba was a victim, really, not a notorious woman. And the other thing is, it doesn't really have that much to do with Jesus being the promised king. And so the third and the most likely possibility is that Matthew is highlighting these four women because none of them are Israelites. They're all foreigners to God's promises. They were women who joined their stories into God's story. Tamar was a Canaanite and so was Rahab. Ruth was a Moabite and Bathsheba was probably a Hittite. But they all threw their lot in with God's plan to save his world through his promised king. Matthew has given us a taste of what Jesus is on about. He ends his eyewitness account of Jesus' life with Jesus saying in Matthew 28, 18, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Jesus is the promised king who will have all authority over all people. And even his royal lineage tells that story. Jesus is a very different kind of king. Because unlike everyone who came before him, he can actually deliver on the promises that God had made. So that's Matthew's family tree. Jesus is the promised king, the promised king who will rule all nations, all people. He stands in a long line of kings, but he's very different to them all. And he brings something very different to the world. But what difference does that make to us? Well, it can make all the difference. Let me explain. Have you noticed that Christmas, for many of us, can either be about pretending or it can be about getting real? Often we approach Christmas as a time to escape reality. It's a time to ignore the credit card debt, a time to ignore family strains and our worries. Just for a day, it's a time to try and enjoy life, 
even if it kills us. And sometimes that work, that works for us, although it starts to stretch pretty thin by about 2 p.m. when the kids are grumpy and fighting, it's 42 degrees outside, and it's 47 degrees in the kitchen next to the oven, working through mountains of dishes that need washing up. Reality comes crashing home at that point. For other people, Christmas can be a time of getting real though. It can be a time of facing up to past hurts in family, not trying to sweep them under the carpet. It can be a time of, of stopping and valuing the people in our life and making sure that they know they're valued. It can be a time not for escaping reality, but a time for appreciating what, what we have in reality in our life. Can I encourage you to make this Christmas a time of getting real? Even more than this, though. Can I encourage you to go one step further than this? A step that will make a world of difference. Make this Christmas a time of getting real with God. What we've seen in this family tree is that Christmas is all about real people. This is a true story. Jesus is born into a real royal dynasty in history. We've seen in this, this family tree that Christmas is all about a real plan. God always intended Jesus to be the King of Kings. And God has been working his plan out over hundreds and hundreds of years. We've seen in this family tree that Christmas is all about a real need. God goes to all this trouble raising up a king across generations because we need this king. Without him, we're cut off from God. Without him, we're lost to God. We're without hope, without light, without life. And we've seen in this family tree that Christmas is all about a real solution. Jesus makes a very real difference to your life. He is the king who lays down his life in your place. He's the king who will undo the mess of this world and the mess of our lives. Let me be completely clear for a minute. In this family tree, we've seen that God, what God is doing with Christmas, we've seen that it needs a real response. Too often people give Jesus a response that's not real. Too often I meet people who observe Jesus from a distance, but stay uninvolved, unaffected. That's not a real response. Either you've given your life to him completely, or you've given him nothing at all. Did you know that? Anything less than giving him all is not a real response. There's all this controversy at the moment about the crown, the show, and how it portrays Prince Charles and Princess Diana in the 80s. And a lot of people are saying that it should say at the beginning, it's just fiction, it's not real. And I think they're probably right. It feels a little bit unfair, the show. But putting all that contra controversy aside for a second, do you remember those awful real life interviews with Charles and Di on their engagement, where the reporter asked them about being in love and, and Di says, yes, we're very much in love. And Charles says, whatever love is. How could he say that? It's like a punch in the guts to anyone who knows what real love is. It doesn't sound like the response of someone who's thrown themselves all in. It's not a real response. I have no idea what he thought he was saying, but it really didn't sound like he was all in. God has unfolded his plan to send Jesus across generations, and he's done it to make a very real difference in your life. Are you all in? He's done it to change your destiny so that you're not lost to him forever. He's done this to win you back, but it starts with winning back your heart. Has he won your heart? 
Are you able to say what Psalm 73 says? Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. If you're not able to say that, then today could actually be an incredible day for you. It could be the start of something very different, a very different Christmas. Today could be the start of the rest of of your life, a life that stretches into eternity, knowing you're loved by God, knowing your life is secure with him, knowing you're saved for all eternity. Don't respond half-heartedly. This is real. Give God a real response. Give your life to Jesus as your king.